Honestly, Bilal is a must-listen for current and aspiring ophthalmologists alike. Hearing the journeys of ophthalmologists at different stages of their careers has been both informative and inspiring. In sharing people's stories, this platform has further connected the ophthalmology community in a time where face-to-face connection is hard to come by. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Honestly Bilal podcast. Um, I am your host, Chris, and this episode is one of many firsts. Uh, first time I'm hosting with uh, the great Bilal Ahmed, who is an intern at the University of Iowa and obviously the creator of this uh, platform. Um, Bilal, do you want to introduce yourself real quickly? Sure, Chris. Thank you so much for uh, starting us off today. And uh, I wouldn't say great, I would say average Bilal, um, but thanks again for, for doing this. And thank you, Dr. Fountain, for joining us today. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I wanted to introduce um, Dr. Fountain, who um, is joining us today um, and giving her time. So first of all, we want to thank you for, for that, Dr. Fountain. But I'll introduce you here real quickly. So Dr. Fountain, she is a professor of ophthalmology at Rush University Medical Center, and she has a private practice in the Oculofacial Plastic Surgery Center in Chicago. She is the uh, president of the Academy of American Ophthalmology. Um, uh, we all know it as the AAO, and she's also one of the past presidents of the American Society of Ophthalmic Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, also known as ASOPERS. So Dr. Fallon, clearly you are someone who is very distinguished and you've accomplished a lot in the field and we're grateful to have you on the show today. Um, thanks for joining us. You know, it's a real honor to be asked to be here with both of you tonight. So I appreciate all that you're doing to increase the reach of ophthalmology and to, to give our, is your audience young ophthalmologists necessarily? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is for all ophthalmologists, um, okay. aspiring ophthalmologists, residents, and attending. So hopefully we're, we're extending the reach, like you said. Well, as an intern and as a fourth-year student, you guys are pretty busy too, I would say. So I think hats off to you also for your work on a project like this. Well, we, we really appreciate that, Dr. Fountain, and the pleasure and honor is all ours. Um, and I wanted to remind the viewers, we have the Woman in Ophthalmology series that Arham is hosting right now, and we are uh, basically hosting authors of the book Woman in Ophthalmology, and Dr. Fountain, you're also one of the authors in that book, so this is a great kind of collaboration that we're doing um, with, with that book segment, and also I wanted to have you on today to talk a little bit about your story of how you got into ophthalmology. Um, but also talking a little bit about um, your role as um, uh, as kind of extending the diversity and representation aspect of ophthalmology and helping improve that that aspect of the field. So why don't we start out, Dr. F uh, Fountain, with getting your origin story and um, how did you get into ophthalmology? Okay, so there are no doctors in my family. So it's not like I, as a kid said, oh, when I get older, I want to be an eye doctor because I really didn't even know what that was. I actually wanted to be a pilot when I was young because that's what my dad was. But uh, I became myopic when I was about eight. So that shot my career of military aviation out of the water because you had to be 2020 uncorrected back at that time. So I had an affinity for math and science. And so as I got towards the end of high school, I thought, hmm, 
what do people who like math and science do? And someone said, they become engineers. So I'm like, okay, I'll be an engineer. But I watched a few, you know, teen movies and, you know, the, the engineers regrettably are sometimes portrayed as being sort of nerdy pocket protector wearing people. And I, I am embarrassed to admit that I succumbed a little bit to that unfortunate stereotype. So when I got to college, I looked around and said, what else can I do in math and science? And a lot of my new friends in college were thinking about pre-med. And I was like, huh. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll just start in that because it's hard to catch up with pre-med if you don't start from the beginning. So I enrolled as a freshman in all the pre-med classes and, you know, I did well in them and I didn't dislike them. And so I just sort of rode that along and went to medical school because I just kind of backed into that as a math and science uh, subject. And then, so once I got to medical school, I thought I'm gonna be a pediatrician because that's the only doctor that I knew. But when I, you know, you can like children, but you also doesn't mean you wanna take care of them because I remember my pedi pediatric rotation, I saw kids who were dying of cancer and I saw kids who were abused by their parents. And oh my gosh, I decided that's not for me but I loved being in the operating room. So any rotation, whether it's general surgery or ob something about the operating room. And honestly, the smell of tincture of benzoin, the dressing adhesive, it was like intoxicating to me. So I found, I said, okay, I'm going to be a surgeon. And then I was thinking about surgery. I was like, hmm, general surgery, every other night call for five years. That seemed like a really difficult life. I wanted to get married and start a family and a friend of mine. Uh, was going into ophthalmology and said, you should look at ophthalmology. It's surgery, but it's got a pretty good lifestyle. And so again, just kind of getting to a fork in the road and making a choice. And that's really my um, uh, unceremonious pathway to ophthalmology. Very nice. So Dr. Fran, I know that, you know, from ophthalmology, you went further and you did a fellowship in oculoplastics and, and now you're that's your bread and butter, what you do and your review. So can you tell us a little bit about oculoplastics? For myself, I'm an intern. Uh, you know, we, we started doing a little bit of oculoplastics here as an intern at uh, the program I'm at the University of Iowa. Um, so, you know, what is something for myself or for others who are, or even for people who are in Chris's shoes, who are considering different specialties or want to un understand a little bit more about uh, the different fields in ophthalmology? What do you think are the, the pros and cons of the field? Just tell us a little bit that we could learn about it. I know when I tell my family members that something as small as the eye has about eight or nine subspecialties, it really just blows their mind. So, okay, so here I have an admission to make. I, I went into ophthalmology and I spent the first two years of my residency doing all the rotations. I did cataract, I did glaucoma, I did PEDS, I did retina. And I really honestly did try to talk myself into loving that kind of microsurgery, intraocular surgery. But I didn't really love it, but I was really trying to push those sentiments aside because I had just devoted quite a bit of time to getting to this point in my residency. And then the first day of my third year, which is an unusual time, uh, if you know anything about the plastics match, the first day of my third year is when I did my first, uh, it was my first exposure to oculoplastics. And remember how I told you I liked that smell of tincture of benzoin? 
well, you don't get that smell in intraocular microsurgery. And so when I did plastics, where you got to use saws and drills and hardware like that, and I could harvest tissue from the leg and I could harvest tissue from the hip, I realized that I was a general slash orthopedic surgeon trapped in an ophthalmology resident's body. And so that's what appealed to me. I don't know if there's a personality per se, but I liked the kind of more macro parts of ophthalmic surgery. And really most of ophthalmic surgery is micro. And I don't think I appreciated what appealed to me when I chose ophthalmology, but luckily for me, there is a specialty that does give you that sort of macro. I liked being able also to interface with other surgical disciplines, which is something as a general ophthalmologist or a glaucoma surgeon or retina surgeon, you really don't commonly get a chance at that cross-disciplinary collaboration. So for me, that was encouraging, but thank goodness there are people who like all the aspects of ophthalmology. Very cool. And, you know, we want to segue from, you know, you've been involved in so many things about your career in terms of not only being established in, in your given specialty, the one that you, you're so passionate about, but also in terms of pushing the field forward overall for all the specialties that you just um, laid out for us. So, uh, Chris, you wanted to bring up a, a question about how to diversify the field. Yeah, so, you know, Dr. Fallon, I, I just had some discussions with Dr. Basil Williams and Dr. Herndon, um, who have also shed their kind of wisdom and insight into, you know, what their roles are as an African-American uh, professor in ophthalmology to kind of help pay it forward to the next generation of aspiring ophthalmologists. And, you know, for you, Dr. Fallon, as a woman and also um, someone who's underrepresented, you know, seeing you as the president of such a big organization is obviously very inspiring for me and for a lot of aspiring ophthalmologists. So just wanted to get your perspective and your insight into, you know, what do you believe your role is as the president of, of AAO and also someone who is underrepresented and kind of helping pay it forward to the next generation? Wow, what a, what a great subject and topic. You know, the... Um... We as a profession, we are about 18,000 domestic uh, ophthalmologists <clears throat> and we, have a, we serve a patient population that it's estimated between 10 and 25 years from now will be majority non-white. And our workforce, so the, the, the universe of ophthalmologists comes nowhere close to reflecting the patient population that we treat. And there, therein lies some, some weaknesses in, in the profession because we know so much of the physician-patient uh, dyad and, and that relationship is, is based on, on trust. And because people come from different backgrounds and have different cultural sensitivities, Sometimes the cultural differences in the physician-patient relationship can, you know, treat, uh, create situations where you don't have the very best um, outcomes. And so we see with COVID, we, I mean, it's nothing, nothing new with COVID, but COVID really laid bare the differences in health outcomes in our country. With COVID in particular, you know, whether you are black or white determined one whether you got the disease in the first place. And I'm talking about the early wave now, not so much the Delta surge, but you know, when, when COVID first broke loose 
you know, it was, it was much more common in um, um, people who were exposed to uh, large crowds and uh, in, in their workforces. And so the, you know, black and brown Americans bore the brunt of the exposures. And then once they got the disease, they also had much poorer outcomes uh, as a result as well. So it really laid in relief the, the issues that we are facing in our country with, with, a, with, a, with the diversity that we have in our patient population not reflected in our, in our ranks uh, as physicians. And you know, we, we know that there is research that, for instance, African-American men in a primary care setting mm-hmm. will much, be much more likely to follow screening recommendations from their primary, primary physician when there is racial concordance. I always want to preface that statistic with a reassurance to our non-ethnic colleagues that you can absolutely still give great care to a patient who doesn't share your racial or ethnic background. Because again, it comes down to a matter of trust. And for some people, just seeing somebody who looks like they do come in the door while they're in a vulnerable situation will immediately give some level of commonality that might not be there. It just means that you might have to work a little bit. I mean, how many times have we met with somebody, say, from a country that we visited and we just say, oh, my gosh, I have been to uh, Czechoslovakia before. And immediately the patient's you know, eyes light up because there's some common theme there. But when it's race, it's, it's, it's one thing that when you first walk in the room, there is this sense, okay, this person has got me. I will add that it, you can't assume that that's always the case because we have some, you know, I'm sure Asian American doctors who don't have necessarily an affinity just because their patient is Asian American. It can be a common uh, bond, but it doesn't, it isn't necessarily. So I think again, culture is like if you're speed dating you know if it's something if 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 the person that you're speed dating went to the same undergraduate that you did that's an immediate bond it might not necessarily mean that your marriage will be that much more successful but it does get you a little bit closer and more comfort quickly and that's where the racial concordance can help but we can all take great care of patients from all different backgrounds if we do our parts to try to find some common theme that puts the patient at ease. Like we see them, but we get them. Absolutely. And, and Dr. Crowner, you, you see it so elegantly, and it's such a pressing reminder in the time that we live in right now, uh, looking back over the last year and even beyond, if you just study history more, our country hasn't been the best about you know, this, not only from a healthcare point of view, but from a social standpoint of view as well. You know, going from there, just wondering, you know, there's, this is a time where myself, Chris, others who are up and coming in this, you know, just trying to get into the field or just trying to, you know, embrace ophthalmology and really, you know, honor the field. We, we not only kind of made an oath in medical school, the Hippocratic Oath, but we need to, you know, keep that in the back of our mind. What that, what does that really mean? You know, what does it really mean to make an oath, make a pledge um, to really serve all people? So, I think it's a you know good reminder that this still relates to ophthalmology and then especially the the points you bring up. With that, we want to segue into you know trainees our, ourselves. You know what what can we do? We, we really are you know I have this right here actually. It's the Yo Info, so the the Yo Info magazine is right here, and it's a great you know it's a great primer for any entering intern or resident ophthalmology to kind of feel welcomed into the field and understand that this is now your badge of honor, but how can you make our field better? 
So, you know, the, the demands of training that you touched on earlier can be exhausting, they can be overwhelming, they can push you out of your comfort zone. But at the same time, we still have a responsibility that we need to do our part to make sure that we're embracing ophthalmology and representing it well uh, and challenging uh, the notions that we need to. So that kind of segues into advocacy. And, and I'm wondering, what is your, you know, what would you encourage, you know, Chris, myself, others who are listening about how to balance advocacy as a trainee? Because it's not like you're fully trained and you don't know everything that, that entails uh, the profession, but you know enough to where you know that it should matter, that what you say matters and who you talk to matters and what you, what the ideas you stand for matter. Um, so just want to get your thoughts on what can residents do from an advocacy point of view? There's a mid-year forum, there's congressional advocacy day, but what can they do, you know, in their institution, in their, in their town, in their community? What can we do to kind of just, you know, break that door open a little bit? Gosh, there is so much. And, and let me just you may not have the experience in advocacy when you're in training, but your voices and your stories are amplified because you all are the, the future of the profession. You all, it's, you know, there are a lot of generational differences in the way that you all process information, the way that you've gotten your educations, the media in which you've gotten your educations. And the way that you relate to patients and, and healthcare has evolved in so many interesting ways over the last years that frankly, people in, in my generation, we've, we've seen the evolution, but you know, we, we haven't learned, we haven't grown up in an environment where social media plays such a role in your patient outlook. I, I, I know that there are many young physicians coming out who have Instagram accounts and encourage their patients to follow them on Facebook. And, you know, for me, I still, that gives me pause. I have had patients who friend me on Facebook and I kind of want to call them and say, that's just not me. No, that, I, I'm, I'm, that, that's not, that's not my comfort level, but that's, that's the way you all um, that's the way you relate. And I think it's wonderful because our patients are increasingly expecting that. So you're right there on the cutting edge and you may not have the, you know, the depth of knowledge on physician payment issues in Washington, DC, or how the Biden administration is going to tackle drug price pricing issues or Medicare is going to become insolvent but you have stories, you're there on the ground, you see what's happening to your patients. You're having to make the two and three and four phone calls to try to get that MRI of, um, approved for your patient. You see the access issues, people run out of drops and can't get their prescriptions filled. And so your, your simple observation in the patient care that you give when you have an opportunity to speak with your state legislator or if you're coming to the mid-year form, which I highly recommend to every single resident and programs like Isla have been very much in the forefront of embracing the value of that trip and supporting the residents among many other great programs uh, and state societies. But it's your voice when we go and, and go on Capitol Hill and we meet with the legislators and or their staff, they've seen us year in and year out that we know them, they know our names, but you all they've not seen before and your stories are a little bit more refreshing many times. So there's a lot of ways you can get involved through your state society, through your academic programs. I think academic programs are recognizing that they may not be able to provide the, the lectures on advocacy, but they can get you all exposed 
to advocacy through your state societies and through the academy programs, the YO program, the ambassador program, et cetera. And for some people that really lights a fire in them feeling like they can make a difference. And I'm always impressed with the social activism of the younger generations. And I think we, you know, when you talk about leadership at my level, we are having as an organization, as Nike has, as, you know, Under Armour has, as Coca-Cola has, you know, organizations trying to figure out what role do we play in social justice in exactly what is our lane. And we are, you know, an organization of ophthalmologists, but I think it is, it is our lane to weigh in on social justice issues that impact our patients as it relates to vision care. So I think that we are all grappling with the role that we should play in our larger society to advance human rights and in our case, patient rights. And in exactly how are we doing that in such a politically divided time? So well said. Yeah, I, I, I could listen to you and be inspired for you, by you for hours about this, but I'll let, I'll let Chris finish us off uh, with the last question. Yeah, Dr. Fallon, I mean, you know, it's, it's just so inspiring, uh, just this whole conversation and, and to get the wisdom from someone that's, that I feel like is such, on such a pedestal and being able to come down to our level and speak with me and Bilal. Um, I think it's just, it's, I'm really thankful that I've had this conversation. I'm sure people listening will also be very thankful for that. But, you know, you have this phrase that you've coined, um, speak up, show up, and follow up that, that, um, that I, you know, I want to learn a little bit more about. How did you coin this term? What does it stand for? You know, why, why, do, you, why do you say it? And um, just wanted to get, get your perspective on that phrase. I did come up with that phrase about three or four years ago, and I, I really hadn't, it just kind of came to me. And if you, you know, com, uh, comedians talk about the, the, the power of three, and, and there's a cadence about things that come in threes that is really sticky from a memory standpoint. So, you know, if, you, if you're trying to develop a public relations campaign, oftentimes it's three things. And so, and it really was based on my observations in my own career at how, and so the first one, the order is actually show up, speak up, follow up. And by show up, I mean, recognize an opportunity. Uh, it, a meeting is being held. Someone invited you to, to go to a state society meeting. Someone has invited you to, um, a lecture by somebody who is who is in town. Recognize the opportunity that that is in front of you sometimes for you to expand your horizons. So that's what it means. What that's what I mean by showing up, being engaged, being open for uh, opportunities that might not even look like opportunities, but are just chances to spread your wings a little bit, or maybe to get out, outside of your comfort zone. You you never know what might come from the interactions from that. Speak up. I often would enter into a new membership or organizational situation as the new person sitting at the table. And I often would not do a lot of engaging or speaking up because I looked around the room and everybody else in the room had so much more experience than I did. I was really just trying to get my 
get my feet wet and learn some of the terminology. I felt like a duck out of water, but someone took me aside, a very prominent, in fact, the very first CEO of the American Academy, the modern American Academy of Ophthalmology and a fellow Iowa boy, Bruce Spivey. I had been on the OMIC committee with him for about three or four years. And I was the youngest person on the board. And we found ourselves together one morning at a breakfast table. And we were the only two people left and he had nobody else to speak with but me. And he's a little gruff and a little intimidating, I have to say, when you don't know him well. And he kind of turned to me and he said, you know, they tell me that we brought you on this board because you had something to contribute, but nobody would know that because you never say, you never say anything. You need to speak up. And then he wiped his mouth with his napkin and walked off, leaving me there. And so I said, well, okay, I'll start speaking up. And a lot of times that speaking up meant asking questions. But as I got on a little bit further in my career and saw younger people and le uh, less experienced people joining the room where I was leading things, I figured out what he meant. And that is that just because you're the youngest, most experienced room person in the room doesn't mean that your voice is not valuable. And in fact, many times your voice is that much more valuable because nobody around the room knows your perspective. You bring, you bring a voice that hasn't been heard in that room before. And that's why it's so valuable. Nobody expects you to know as much as everybody else in the room, but what you do know can be very important because many people have drunk the Kool-Aid of that organization and have become sort of yes people and have forgotten how to ask the fundamental questions that a new person will ask. So the show up part, excuse me, the, the speak up part just means to have faith in your opinions and your voice and don't be afraid to ask the questions. And the final one was really a follow up. And by that, I mean more um, a gratitude, a, a recognition of the um, the help that you've gotten from other people so that when I say follow up, it could be that if someone has given you an assignment, make sure that you follow up on that and deliver. But I also mean it in that you need to have a certain amount of humility and recognize the power of a thank you and to call somebody after they have introduced you to somebody and say, hey, listen, I really appreciate you inviting me to that um, to that lecture the other day, it was really it was really helpful for me. You'd be surprised how that simple act of gratitude will impact the person that you're working with, and will will make you memorable in that person's mind. And perhaps that person will want to advocate for you going forward. So it's a simple thing we learn it in kindergarten to say thank you, but it's sometimes something that we don't think about too much in it. You know, I'm a big fan of handwritten notes. I mean, who gets great snail mail these days? It's all circulars and, um, you know, junk mail. When you get a handwritten letter, man, I keep everyone that I get. But if you can't find a stamp, that's okay. A, a, an email or even a follow-up text is also, I think, something that's appreciated by people. So I would say, uh, humility and gratitude and recognizing the role that other people play in your success is a mark of a very um, introspective person who recognizes that oftentimes their pathway through life 
is not necessarily solely through their own hard work, although that's part of it, but it's also because somebody else is also pulling for you and working the levers in the background and believing in you. Well, you heard it from Dr. Fallon, everybody. Show up, speak up, and follow up. And I'm going to do the follow-up portion here. Dr. Fallon, thank you so much for uh, investing your time with us today. Um, you are, you're wearing a lot of hats. You are very busy, but the fact that you were able to uh, give us a little bit of your time, it just speaks volumes about who you are. And, and like I said, we look up to you as a woman and also as someone who's underrepresented in the field to continue to move the field forward. Um, and just thank you again. Bilal, uh, what do you have to, to say? Nothing. Absolutely. That's the theme of the show is to speak up and to show up. And, and that's what inspires us to be here and to do this. Um, so Dr. Crown, again, this is, this means so much. And uh, we, I think we, we both will, will make sure that we, we honor those three sentiments and all the other ones that you brought up tonight. Well, gosh, thanks guys so much. This has really been a pleasure for me and a, a punctuation to a, a, a day and a really great way to end my day. So I enjoy doing things like this. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak with both of you tonight and applaud you for, for what you're doing to get this kind of message out. So kudos to you and good luck to both of you. All right. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Have a good night. Good night. Thanks for listening to Honestly Bilal. You can find all previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere where podcasts are listened to. Really want to thank everybody who's listening to all of our episodes or is just discovering our show now. Going forward, all of our episodes are going to be audio only, and we're continuing to expand the variety and also the topics at which we are kind of addressing on this show. We really want our show to reflect honesty and just really the authentic journey of everybody in the ophthalmology community and how we can bring everybody together. So we hope you enjoy our content. You can find more of it on honestlybilal.com where we have guest blog articles and really an opportunity for just synthesize all the stuff that we're bringing for you all. So follow us on social media. Honestly, Bilal is the username for me on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, and the other members of our team, you can find them pretty much where you can find me. So thanks for joining and we'll talk to you guys next time.